Do you ever catch yourself wishing you didn't have to stay positive? Or maybe you've been working on keeping a positive mindset for years, but it still feels like a daily battle sometimes. Having a chronic illness means you're being told to stay positive all the time. And let's be honest, it's exhausting. Because pushing ourselves to stay positive is not actually positive. There's a much easier way to get a strong, positive mindset and all of the feel-good perks that come with it without the pressure of looking on the bright side. Check out my free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset. In it, I give the straight scoop on strategies that work and common strategies that are a waste of time and energy. Go to andreahansencoaching.com now or use the link in this podcast description and get your free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset, today. You are listening to the Health Mindset Podcast, episode 18. Welcome to the Health Mindset Podcast, where your mindset gets results. You know you want better health. You know you want to take action. Learn how to stop sabotaging your progress so you can achieve the level of health you've always wanted for your life. Now, here's your host, Master Certified Coach and Author, Andrea Hansen. Welcome. As always, I am so glad to have you here joining me. Today, we are talking about diet. Now, I know it's a crappy word, but don't tune me out yet. I'm talking about diet in a way that you've never heard before. This is the third and last podcast in a series where I'm giving you a behind-the-scenes look at different chapters in my latest book, Stop Carrying the Weight of Your MS. It's in celebration of its release in paperback this May at all of your favorite bookstores. I'm super proud of this book, which is all about losing weight and losing stress when you're facing a diagnosis of any kind. And links on how to get your copy are in the show notes at andreahansencoaching.com slash HMP018. And hey, while you're in the show notes, please also follow the link to review and subscribe to this podcast. It's those reviews and subscriptions that keep it going and spread the word to new listeners. Diet. Diet isn't about restrictions. It's not about limiting yourself. It's not about feeling crappy and left out of the fun. You know me better than that by now. In this third chapter of my book, Stop Carrying the Weight of Your MS, I talk about what a diet really is and how to make huge changes now without much brain power or willpower. A lot of what holds us back in adapting a diet that works for us is confusion. And I address that and I give you tips on what you can try right now. Diet is just a word that has bad connotations. And if you're like me, you've done some pretty awful things to yourself in the name of a diet. My low point was when I burst into tears because I let myself have one grape for dessert because the sugar content. I savored that one tiny grape as long as I could. Then I thought about my future filled with loneliness and oppressive grape eating, and I couldn't deal. So I sat there, willpower shot, confidence totally gone, staring at a half-eaten grape, crying about what my life will look like. I told you, pretty low. But it's easy to get there. It's easy to lose touch with yourself and follow pretty restrictive diets in the name of health. You can develop a fear of bad foods and what they'll do to you. What's called the diet mentality can be insidious. It can twist you up before you know it. That's why I addressed it in this chapter of my book. 
What you eat is one of the most important parts of getting to your natural weight. I will never forget a trainer telling me that I will never be able to outrun a bad diet. And that is so true. I actually treat diet and working out as two totally different areas of my life and my health. One isn't dependent on the other. Diet is the queen bee, and there are such simple things that you can do to help yourself. And once you tap into your own body's wisdom, which I talk about how to do in this chapter, your confidence and your ability to know what's good for you will skyrocket. So please enjoy the third chapter of Stop Carrying the Weight of Your MS. Chapter three, not your mama's diet. Diet, it's become such an ugly word. It's synonymous with restrictions and hardships. When you're on a diet, fun is not to be had. In fact, you're made to sit on the sidelines watching non-dieting people have all the fun that they want because they're allowed to eat, not you. You're on a diet. It's no wonder people think that they have to wait until vacation is over or any celebratory dinners are done before they can truly get into a diet. People make it hard to follow and often very restrictive because they have to. They're psyching themselves out before they start. Listen to the language that's used when someone is on a diet. I can't have that. I can only have a little of that. I'm not allowed to have that. Let me see if there's anything on the menu I can eat. I'm going to be bad and eat this because I really don't care. There's no ownership there. It's all about someone outside of you controlling what you can and can't do. It gets uncomfortable, even victimy. And stopping the diet feels like defiance, adolescent rebellion, and even resigning yourself to just not caring anymore. No, thank you. The truth is, diets are important. It's not the word diet that is so hated. It's the associations that we give it. We hate restrictions, or we see them as necessary evils, but we don't hate food. Food is an object. We can choose to eat it or not. Let's use a definition of diet that's simply what we eat. That's it. It's what we eat. Junk food is as much of a part of a diet as is being vegan. What we eat is very important. That's why we put so much stock in what nutritionists and food studies say, because we hope they have the answer to the very important question, what food is right for me? Understanding the importance of finding the foods that work for your body is a cornerstone for losing weight. Exercise is great, and I'll talk more about the benefits of that in chapter seven, but it's not the most important part of losing weight, not by a long shot. The bottom line is if you want to lose weight, look at what you eat. So yes, I'm going to talk about diet because it's hugely important, but I'm not talking about restrictions or giving up control. What I'll show you is how to take ownership of your diet and how to start making food your choice and no one else's ever again. If you're like I was, Not having anyone tell you what to do about your diet may seem foreign. When I first changed my definition of diet and started following my gut, quite literally, I felt alone. I knew there wasn't going to be one diet that worked for me. I had followed too many to the T, only to find out that there were aspects of them that mysteriously made me gain weight. When I realized that just because a famous guru said a certain food was the gold standard, that didn't mean it was good for me. I had no crowd to follow. I was on my own. Now I know there's so much freedom there. When I was looking for the magic diet that worked for me, instead of feeling independent, I felt confused and often betrayed. He said avocados were good for me, but they made me gain weight and not lose it like he said they would. Wait, I thought that food was okay to have. Now he's telling me I can't have that either? I was always following, never leading. 
I didn't think I was qualified to know how my body reacted to food. I thought I would have to get all kinds of certifications about nutrition to be able to confidently say what I could eat. That couldn't be farther from the truth. What I needed was to understand what worked in my body. Even though there are thousands of different diets, they're still either a one-size-fits-all approach or filled with complicated rules. If there's one thing I've learned in 16 years of having MS, it's that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to being healthy, especially when MS is involved. We'll talk more in Chapter 6 about breaking away from the one-size-fits-all mentality and finding your specific diet, but first, I want to talk about food. I think food is quite possibly the most important thing you'll put into your body, and that includes medication. The no-brainer approach to food. Of all the different diet advice out there, common threads definitely appear. These are what I call the no-brainers, and they're a fantastic way to make sweeping changes in your health without worrying if you're following a trend that may turn on you down the road. No-brainers focus simply on cleaning up what you currently eat. It may be tempting to start a new diet by going gluten, carbohydrate, or dairy-free. I don't recommend that at first. This is probably not what you're used to hearing. But before you start looking at specific food choices for your body, it helps to be in a place where you can clearly hear your body to begin with. When we do a whole bunch of changes at once, we can miss the mark. Or worse, we can throw the baby out with the bathwater and end up giving ourselves way more restrictions than we actually need to. For example, why go completely grain-free when the real problem is only corn? My hunch is that there's a lot of confusion going on in your mind and body. You may have thoughts swirling around that you didn't realize are affecting your drive and your motivation. Hunger and emotions may be crossing paths so that the cravings and even food addictions are preventing clear communication from your body. These factors come together to create a lot of noise that stops you from truly seeing what changes work and what don't. First, you're going to get the noise cleared out so that you can tell what's working. In order to start doing that, I suggest making some broad strokes regarding food. And I'll show you later how to fine-tune. The first broad stroke is the no-brainer approach to food. We looked at changing your definition of diet to simply be the food you eat. Now let's change the definition of food to mean whole ingredients in their original form. Anything other than food in its true form is processed. This can get tricky because most food in stores and in our pantries is processed. Peanut butter, olive oil, whole grain bread, frozen broccoli even if it's organic, grass-fed, free-range, and made with love, is processed. Ideally, everything we eat should be in whole, off-the-vine form, organic and clean. Really, we should just grow everything ourselves and live off the grid. That's the only way to verify the purity of anything we eat. Okay, let's not do this. At least not yet. I give some processed food to pass, for now, because salad dressing and salsa happen. We're human. For me, it doesn't feel good to be super nitpicky. But I still keep a close eye on where those processed ingredients originate and how they're grown. The truth is, there's a whole layer of highly processed foods that are widely considered to be bad, even harmful for our health. The reason they're so bad is that it's hard to say what's really in them. These are the prepackaged foods that have ingredients lists two inches long, containing words that you can't pronounce and that you may also have seen listed in your stain remover. These are bars, cereals, frozen dinners, and food from not-so-high-end restaurants. There are some scary ingredients in what we call ultra-processed foods, and they often have a higher amount of sugar and sodium that you can't even taste. 
There are too many studies to count that link sugar and too much sodium to health issues and inflammation in your body. By simply cutting out these ultra-processed foods, your sugar and sodium consumption, not to mention your chemical intake, will go way down. I spent many years feeling pissed off and out of control whenever I restricted my diet to lose weight. But I now see that the real place I had no control was when I ate ultra-processed foods. I thought I was exercising total control because I was, quote, eating what I wanted. But the irony is that I wasn't controlling the amount of crap that was entering my body during those times of freedom. Another great way to start cleaning up your food is by not eating sugar. If you're already doing well with staying away from processed foods, releasing sugar is a great place to go next. This is a big change that I've made with my life. And to be honest, I wouldn't have believed all the benefits if they weren't happening to me. Weight loss, definitely, but my triglyceride levels, a type of fat stored in blood, too much of which can elevate the chances of stroke and heart disease, are minuscule. And my energy levels are super high and my mind is clear. These are effects that I felt within a week of quitting sugar. And to be clear, this includes sugar and also any sugar substitutes, such as high fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, sugar substitutes, even the natural kind. I eat whole fruit, but rarely drink fruit juice, only if it's cold pressed and juiced within hours of drinking it. Again, we're talking about food very close to its original form. Quitting sugar is a big change to make. I still can't believe I drink coffee and tea with no sweetener but it's given me one of the highest payoffs of anything I've ever done. These are great places to start cleaning up your diet. I suggest doing one of them at a time, even though they will eventually piggyback on each other, and the second change will be easier than the first. Pacing yourself is important because these are big steps. Later in this chapter, I'll give you a tool to help you with the pacing. Case study, Mary. I had been working with Mary for a few weeks before she opened up about her habit. Every day, after dropping her son off at soccer practice, she swung by the drive-thru to get a shake. She described the shake to me in detail, and I could hear her craving it while we were on the phone. This isn't just any shake, she said. It's cookies and cream, with the best vanilla custard and just the right amount of chocolate. They use real chocolate syrup, too. You can tell the difference, you know. She then became aware of how caught up she was in the description of her shake, and went on to say how much shame she felt around her habit and that she didn't feel in control of it at all. I swear, my car just autopilots over there, she said, and nervously laughed. Her nervous laughter didn't come because I got mad or lectured her. She wasn't afraid of what I would say. She was feeling her own disapproval. Mary may have made fun of herself driving home with her shake. She may have even defended it while laughing nervously. But the truth was... She hated that loss of control. She wished she didn't have to visit the drive-thru and felt like it was an addiction. She even quoted a passage she read online about how sugar is an addiction like heroin. I agreed with her. Up until a point, I still do. Sugar is addictive, but the addiction is not insurmountable. What Mary and I worked together on in the next few weeks of coaching sessions was helping her quit the addiction. We started with why she had it in the first place and what she thought of it. We explored everything she thought that was fact and why those thoughts were holding her in place. She learned how to release those belief systems and tag them for easy detection when they came up again. We talked and walked her through the ups and downs of leaving a sugar habit behind. Mary kicked and screamed and cried. It was hard for her, especially when she reignited her taste for sugar by having just one. 
but she did enough self-exploration to be able to take ownership of her actions and act in a way that was healthier and that she wanted more than she wanted sugar. She was proud of herself and pleased with the results. That kick started her weight loss and her feelings of freedom with food. At the beginning of our time together, she would swear that it was eating what she wanted that meant freedom in her diet. By the end of our sessions, Mary said that having control was the ultimate freedom. What this means to you. There is so much blame to go around when it comes to food. We can blame the manufacturers for using addictive chemicals. We can blame the marketers for using skinny people to make junk food look so healthy and light. We can blame our own chemistry for allowing behaviors like addiction to happen. We can blame the food scientists for crafting the right combination of chemicals to entice our natural biology to crave it. We blame time for not being long enough to let us plan ahead better or the schedules for not permitting us to really pay attention. We blame other people for putting bad food in front of us when we're hungry. Often, we blame ourselves for being weak and having no willpower and for, quote, not getting into gear. The truth is, who's to blame for the food you eat is old news because it doesn't matter. What you ate even earlier today is done. Assigning blame is a waste of time and energy. Even if you're blaming yourself, feeling like you're failing, it doesn't serve you. What's a better use of the time and energy that you get back when you stop focusing on blame? Making simple, no-brainer choices about your food, starting with your very next meal. You have way more control than you likely give yourself credit for. Even if you do feel addicted to sugar or chemicals in your food, you have the final say. You can do this. Pacing yourself is an essential part of getting started. I want to give you a tool that can help you both see where you are right now and help you decide on the first changes you'll make. But first, a public service announcement. Food journals are not bad. Just like diets and food, they have received a bad rap because we assign them all of these negative associations. If you beat yourself up about what food you eat, you will hate Food journaling. If you feel scared of what you'll discover when you journal because you think eating certain foods make you inherently good or bad, you will hate food journaling. If you want to focus only on moving forward and completely changing your diet without looking at what you currently eat, you will hate food journaling. I invite you to have a different definition of the food journal. This is not about beating yourself up. It's not about dreading what you've already eaten. A food journal is just information. If you're scared to do this, hate that I'm even suggesting it, or are already planning on skipping this step and moving to the next chapter, I ask that you please do something first. Ask yourself why you don't like the idea of keeping a food journal. Your list of reasons is pure gold because it gives you a good idea of the stigma that you're placing on it. And it also provides proof that it's not the food journal that makes you feel this way. You haven't started using my version of the food journal yet. The reason you feel this way is because you're thinking about food journaling in a certain way, not because of the actual journal. And thoughts can be changed. Keeping that in mind, I ask that you give the food journal a try for one week. The reason I say one week is because that's typically how long it takes to get over the observer effect and have a good baseline. The observer effect happens when the object, in this case the behavior of eating, being studied changes simply because it's being watched. I have no doubt that this is a very real phenomenon when it comes to food journals. Start by tracking the time of day you eat and what you eat. You can do this in any format you like. Some of my clients take pictures of what they eat so they remember everything. 
That's all you need to do for the first week of your food journal. No changes to your diet, just observe the status quo. If you feel any resistance to this or find yourself omitting certain things, it's okay. We all do it. Notice what you're thinking and write it down. I'll show in a later chapter how we'll use that to help you. Future focus. When you start your food journaling as pure observation and not beating yourself up, a major shift happens in awareness. You see what's currently happening and you begin to map out how you want to change your lifestyle to get the future that you want. This is where you can bring awareness to playing around with what no-brainers you can change first in your food. It's also where you can see how far you want to go at first. Do you cut out all processed foods, for example, or just the ones with certain chemicals at first? You have all the control over where you start and how much you do. And with your food journal, you have a great visual on how to pace yourself. As you begin to make changes, you'll be able to tell, for example, if you're changing 10% of your food choices or 100. How much change gives you the highest possibility of staying with it? How much change will make you quit in week two? Use this beginning status quo food journal to prepare to map it out. Getting really good at this step of food journaling for observation will help you not only at the beginning, but any time you would like to recalibrate to get more specific with your diet. You're getting into the role of looking at your life as a scientist would, documenting the status quo and seeing how changes fit. I use this status quo food journaling whenever I want to up-level my health, like when I want to try different foods or pinpoint something that I didn't think is working. This is a skill that will always be useful to you as you up-level your health as well. In order for food journaling to be useful for you, you need to pay attention to the stigma that you're currently giving it. Start where you are now. Whenever I start looking at a client's food and what they're currently doing, it's always important to lead with kindness. In no way is this looking for an excuse to beat yourself up or blame yourself for where you are now. Anger has no place when you're moving forward and assigning blame only holds you back. It's time to get ahead. It's time to make the changes you know can directly help your health and also help your MS. But it's important that you have your own back this whole time by being kind to yourself. That's the only way to make changes that stick. I have white-knuckled changes in my diet and exercise, forcing myself to do what someone else outlined for me while blaming myself handily for getting fat. I assure you that doesn't work. My hunch is that you know this firsthand too. Give yourself a chance and do these steps with kindness this time. Notice when you're fighting with yourself and when you feel guilt or shame. If you start to look at your diet as simply the food you eat, you will see options for change that you may not have otherwise seen. You might even leave room to be pleasantly surprised. Thanks for joining me on the last in the series of podcasts about my book, Stop Carrying the Weight of Your MS. It will be available in paperback in your favorite bookstores this May. For links to order your copy, visit the show notes at andreahansencoaching.com slash HMP018. You'll be able to pre-order a copy so it gets sent to you as soon as it hits the shelves. And hey, while you're in the show notes, don't forget to review and subscribe to the podcast. When you subscribe to the podcast, you take all the work out of finding new episodes because each time they're released, they are delivered straight to your app. And reviewing it is super important to the life of this podcast, and it helps get this message out to people just like you who want to hear more. So thank you in advance for giving back. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more good stuff on how you can stop striving and start achieving your healthy, beautiful life. Until next time, take care.